Herbert Hoover and his recent bride, Lou, arrived in China in March 1899. Hoover had just received a promotion to be the chief engineer in China for the British mining firm Bewick Mooring and Company. As we discussed about a year ago in our eighth episode of season one, the Boxer Rebellion broke out in June 1900. This event caught the Hoovers in Tianjin, China. For almost a month, the settlement was under heavy fire. The Hoovers were in the thick of the city's defense. Herbert helped construct defensive barricades, organized the food supplies, and saw to the operation of the water purification plant. And his wife, Lou, helped out at the hospital. A multinational military force relieved Tianjin in mid-July, and the Hoovers were able to leave for England at the beginning of August. Hoover's subsequent work for the mining company and his ability to restructure other troubled mining companies made him extremely wealthy. One week before Hoover celebrated his 40th birthday in London in 1914, Germany declared war on France, and the American Consul General asked for Hoover's help in getting stranded tourists home. In six weeks, a committee Hoover organized and directed helped 120,000 Americans to return to the United States. Next, Hoover turned to a more difficult task, Belgium had been directly affected by the outbreak of hostilities, and its starving people needed to be fed. After the United States entered the war, President Wilson appointed Hoover head of the United States Food Administration. He succeeded in cutting consumption of foods that were needed overseas and avoided rationing at home, yet keeping the Allies including the citizens of Belgium, fed. After the armistice in 1918, Hoover, a member of the Supreme Economic Council and head of the American Relief Administration, organized shipments of food for millions of starving people in Central Europe. He extended aid to famine-stricken Soviet Russia in 1921 when a critic inquired if he was not thus helping Bolshevism, Hoover retorted, 20 million people are starving. Whatever their politics, they shall be fed. By this time, Hoover had begun to be known by the moniker, the Great Humanitarian. After capably serving as Secretary of Commerce under Presidents Harding and Coolidge, Hoover became the Republican presidential nominee in 1928, propelled to victory in large part by media coverage that lauded his work directing the relief efforts implemented after the Mississippi River flood of 1927. Bonjour and bienvenue. Hello and welcome back to Meyer Fun Facts. I'm Steve Meyer, and as the saying goes, 
Who needs Google when you have Steve Meyer? Today, we bring you episode five of season four, Herbert Hoover and the Mississippi River Flood of 1927. The genesis of this podcast was a recommendation by longtime maniac Jeff to take a look at the story behind the Mississippi River Flood of 1927. Don't forget that you too can make a topic request or send a question by dropping an email to myerfacts at gmail.com. A couple of brief programming notes. Due to a bout with a bad call and the crud, this podcast was unfortunately delayed. There will be another upcoming delay before the next podcast due to a well-earned vacation in warmer weather. Now, let's get back to our podcast, Herbert Hoover and the Mississippi River Flood of 1927. Before we get to the details of the Mississippi River Flood of 1927, I'm going to open the mailbag and answer some of the inquiries that we have received. Longtime listener Bruce, who was a research contributor to the pod's most listened to episode, The Red Gym, sent an email pointing out a recent Wisconsin State Journal article on the history of intercollegiate hockey at the University of Wisconsin, the hockey team's early contest, and by early we mean 1890s, early 1900s, until a 28-year hiatus starting in 1935. Those early contests were played on what's now Library Mall. Library Malls, of course, located directly outside of the southern entrance to the Red Gym. The Wisconsin rink was constructed there each year with boards, overhead lights, and places for spectators to watch. But that outdoor ice was undependable, leaving Badger coaches to get creative for training before the team went on the road for games. The gym floor at the nearby Red Gym substituted for ice and roller skates replaced blades. It's another Meyer fun fact for that venerable building known as the Red Gym. After the podcast on Project Elf, I received a number of emails from the West Coast maniacs. The focus of their inquiries was simply, what does the Navy use now to communicate with their submerged nuclear subs? The reason for their questions, I believe, was provoked in part by Professor Walton mentioning the existence of a low-frequency transmitter in the state of Washington. The West Coast maniacs were familiar with the Jim Creek Naval Radio Station, which can be found in the foothills of the Cascades, just north of the city of Seattle. 
They were familiar with it, not because of its military purposes, but rather because of its surrounding 5,000-acre nature preserve and recreation area, which is well-known in the area for high-quality fishing, but is off-limits to non-military anglers. During my sit-down with Professor Walton, I did ask him that question. Do we know what uh, what replaced it or what the Navy uses now <laughs> to communicate? Ooh, uh, pass. I really okay. don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, we have satellite communication. But hey, I'm... I thought I'd ask. Maybe you knew me. Yeah, uh, never looked into that. That's so modern. I, I like yeah. older and older history. Not to be deterred, the Minions went ahead and did some bang-up follow-up research. The facility at Jim Creek is still operational, and unlike Project Elf at Clam Lake, Jim Creek has a dedicated power line running direct from the Bonneville Dam on the Columbia River. The concern about the transmission facility being a priority target for the Russians is diminished somewhat by its proximity to another Russian target, the Puget Sound Trident Submarine Base. In addition to the Jim Creek facility, the Minions found three other modes of communication used by the U.S. Navy. There is the digitally based, highly secretive, deep siren program developed by Raytheon. And out of MIT is Project TARF, T-A-R-F, in which submarines point an acoustic speaker towards the surface, which causes ripples that can be translated by planes flying overhead. But the best known and most common method of communication used by both the American and Russian navies is one in which they have placed sonic communication equipment in the seabed of areas frequently traveled by their respective submarines and connected it by underwater communication cables to their land stations. If a submarine hides near such a device, it can stay in contact with its headquarters. When we come back, we turn our attention to the Great Mississippi River Flood of 1927. The Mississippi River Basin covers 41% of the continental United States, including 31 separate individual states, encompassing 1.2 million square miles. Its size is only exceeded by the Congo and Amazon rivers. That portion of the basin, referred to as the Lower Mississippi River, runs from the mouth of the Ohio River near Cairo, Illinois, to New Orleans. It flows through the flattest land in North America, which allows the river to meander considerably, constantly changing course. If you ever kayak or canoe rivers in northern Wisconsin, 
you can tell that main channels change over time. This occurs despite the fact those rivers are carved through bedrock versus the lower Mississippi, which runs through sand and clay, facilitating the meandering and facilitating the constant change in the course of the river. But in his ever-ending quest to control nature for his own benefit, man has intervened to stop these constant natural changes in the course of the Mississippi River by building levees, earthen embankments parallel to the river. Starting in 1718, the city of New Orleans built the levee 5,400 feet long, 18 feet wide at the crown, and three feet high. From that time forward, the signature characteristic of the efforts to control the river had been to build bigger and bigger levees after each major flood. Mark Twain, in his memoir, Life on the Mississippi, commented on these efforts. You cannot tame that lawless stream, cannot curb it or confine it, cannot say to it, go here or go there and make it obey, cannot save a shore which it has sentenced cannot bar its path with an obstruction which it will not tear down, dance over, and laugh at. While originally, individual landowners were responsible for the building and maintenance of levees on their properties abutting the river, the floods of 1890 and 1912 led Congress to pass the first Flood Control Act of 1917. It directed and provided for the Army Corps of Engineers with their bigger and more advanced equipment, such as steam shovels, to build a levee system running the entire 1,000 miles from Cairo, Illinois to New Orleans on both sides of the river. As the project near completion toward the end of 1926, the levees were at least 40 feet high, if not more, and 100 feet wide at the crown. By this time, most people were convinced that the river had finally been tamed. The timing for such optimistic sentiment about the technological prowess of the levees could not have been worse. A vicious weather pattern stalled over most of the central Mississippi River drainage basin in the fall of 1926, swelling the river and its tributaries. The rain saturated surrounding lands to the point where any additional precipitation immediately turned into runoff. Heavy rains continued from December through early spring. In early January 1927, the first of three waves of floodwaters approached the lower Mississippi River region. Armed guards patrolled the levees. 
fearful that residents from the other side of the river would take matters into their own hands and cause a breach in order to save the levee on their own side of the river. The relentless force of the water continued to pound the levees. On April 22, 1927, at a site just north of Greenville, Mississippi, about 100 miles or so south of Memphis, that constant pressure from the river caused a section of the levee to give way, creating a crevice 100 feet deep and a half mile wide. Floodwaters poured through the breach, flooding agricultural lands located to the east. 120 more breaks along the lower Mississippi would follow. By May, over 26,000 square miles of the Delta region were underwater. The river grew to 60 to 70 miles wide with depths up to 30 feet, inundating and destroying over 162,000 homes, sweeping away farm animals and killing an unknown amount of people believed to be in the neighborhood of 250 to 500. 600,000 people were suddenly homeless seeking shelter. It was a natural and a regional disaster of heretofore unseen proportions. President Coolidge looked to the great humanitarian for help. The morning following the levee breach north of Greenville, President Coolidge created a quasi-governmental commission that included members of his cabinet and the American Red Cross. The commission encouraged the public to donate funds to the relief effort and gave Secretary of Commerce Hoover near absolute authority to organize and oversee its response. Hoover used this authority to weave together federal resources, American National Red Cross volunteers, and the private sector to carry out the relief and recovery program. In effect, the flood response policy was centralized, but its execution was decentralized. Coolidge asked the public to donate up to $5 million to the Red Cross for relief purposes. But with Hoover taking to the radio airwaves quickly and repeatedly, donations from the public eventually reached $21 million. In the days and weeks that followed, 640,000 displaced persons were aided by the Red Cross. 300,000 stayed in over 150 Red Cross camps, many for up to four months when the waters had finally receded. The remainder of the evacuees stayed elsewhere, but received food from the Red Cross. The Red Cross provided those in the camps with food, 
tobacco, medical care, clothing, and some entertainment. Evacuees typically lived in tents donated by the Department of War and had access to simple bathing and toilet facilities. They received rudimentary medical care, Hoover having convinced the Rockefeller Foundation to help address public health issues. The Army Corps of Engineers, after some delay, repaired the levees, and Hoover encouraged affected states to incorporate state reconstruction corporations. By the end of July, when the waters had retreated somewhat, the Red Cross camps started to be closed down. However, the relief efforts were not without its problems. The decentralized execution meant that the federal government had little oversight of the actual operations of the relief camps. In some Red Cross camps, local officials brutalized black evacuees and refused to allow them to leave the camps. In each of these instances, the federal government had no one at these sites to provide accurate reports on the conditions or put a halt to these actions. Some of the regional Red Cross administrators were the local rich white planters who saw their black sharecroppers, plantation wage hands, and cotton tenants as the main source of cheap labor to stack sandbags and perform the work of saving the region. Fearful that this cheap labor source would join the northward migration that had already started after World War I, the black refugees were prohibited from leaving and frequently held under armed guard. The flood was so transformative for the region that it is impossible to trace all of the subsequent ramifications. When we come back, the epilogue. When I started putting together this podcast, neither myself nor the minions in the research department had a clue about this 1927 flood. Now, high on my reading list for this coming spring will be the New York Times award-winning book, Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America by John Barry. This is the same John Barry who wrote the book, The Great Influenza. If Rising Tide is half as good as The Great Influenza, it'll be well worth the read. For a detailed report on the plight of African-Americans during the relief effort, take a look at the research paper by Miles McMurchie titled, The Red Cross Is Not All Right. It's available online and published as part of the Yale University Historical Review. 
in wrapping up the epilogue, it's time to relate some Meyer fun facts or, at a minimum, take a look at ex some examples of Meyer's law of unintended consequences. In the year following the flood, Herbert Hoover swept to the presidency in a landslide over Al Smith. But by the end of his presidential term, rather than being known as the great humanitarian or the master of emergencies, his name instead became synonymous with depression area shanty towns inhabited by the homeless. While the Army Corps of Engineers set about to repair the levees, its levees-only policy for controlling the flow of the Mississippi and its policy of closing off natural reservoirs and floodways was reversed and became a thing of the past. I may have misspoken when I said that this was a natural disaster. The governor of Pennsylvania vehemently disagreed, characterizing the flood as a man-made disaster, laying the blame at the feet of the Army Corps of Engineers and its levees-only policy. Finally, in what can only be described as a dark foreshadowing, the city of New Orleans, in a controversial and perhaps mistaken act to relieve the pressure on its city levees, dynamited the levee system downstream, causing the raging waters to wipe out St. Bernard Parish, the same parish destroyed in 2005 by Hurricane Katrina. That concludes this episode of Meyer Fun Facts, Herbert Hoover and the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Don't forget to send your comments and questions to me by email at meyerfacts at gmail.com. We'll see you in a couple weeks when we have a very, very special podcast that I've been looking forward to doing since we started the show. It's going to be a special guest discussing Leo Burke. Until then, take care. <laughs>